Well, good morning. Uh, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. We um, have been weaving these two series together, uh, the Ecclesiastes series and this Outlining the Story series. And um, we've, uh, as, as I stated when we first started this series, we're uh, doing kind of an overview of the Old Testament story. Kind of the, the well, I'll throw that out there, the meta-narrative is what they call it, the overarching narrative of the Old Testament. We're going to cover that. And so I, I gave this illustration that uh, if, if we were covering everything in the Old Testament, it, it might look like Tom the turkey all filled in with all the details, you know, red and brown, um, darker brown. But we're doing kind of an outline of what's going on. So we'll get a sense, a general sense uh, of what God is doing in, in Old Testament history, what God is uh, trying to communicate to us through the Old Testament story. But we're not going to fill in all the details. And so probably um, some things that you really love in the Old Testament, we might just fly right past that thing. But then, of course, after I say that, we covered Genesis 1, then we covered Genesis 2, and today we're covering Genesis 3. So we're pretty much covering it all so far. Um, but it's because in this first section, we really have these fundamental first principles that, that really... If, if misunderstood or not properly understood, then really the rest of the Old Testament, really the rest of history up until our, our time and place now, we won't really understand well. And so we have to get these first principles kind of locked in. And, and those principles that we've covered already are the fact that God is the creator. That's the, the beginning um, peg of the story. And, and because he's creator and the fact that he created everything that there is, everything that we know, that means he has rights to everything in creation. He has creator's rights over everything. And that includes us, that every single one of us was created by God. He breathed life into us. And so we live in this fundamentally dependent relationship upon God. We're, we're, we're dependent upon Him. Whether we realize it or not, we are. Every heartbeat, uh, our heart beats, uh, is, is, is a willful act by God to keep us alive, to continue to fill our, our breath with lungs. It's His breath that is filling up our lungs. And so we live every moment of every day in this dependent relationship with Him. And and we should respond properly to our creation. And the, and the reason why we were, we were created, which, which is to reflect God, to be image bearers of God. And that's why we are on this earth. Now, we have done a poor job of that, but it doesn't mean that that's not still our purpose. And so we, we uh, live in this dependent relationship. We have this, this purpose of being a reflection. And then we have God putting this tree into the middle of the garden in which he had created for Adam and Eve, um, which was this gracious gift to mankind of, of choice, of will, of volition. It was a way that we could, we could image God, represent God by reflecting the, the choices that we're able to make. We are not, we don't, we don't just, we're not just bound by animal instinct. We are not robots who just follow our programming, that we actually can choose to love and follow him. In fact, that's why he gave us the choice, is so that we would love and follow him. Chapter two ends with this beautiful picture of this garden in which Adam and Eve are now these created, volitional, free will beings that are choosing to love God, choosing to, to live in this oneness relationship that God's created for them. And we just have this verse that kind of encapsulates it at the end of, of chapter 2 where he says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That, that with one, one sentence, he, he captures the fact that there, there's this beautiful reality where there's just no shame, no expectation of hurt, no, no hint of any possible exploitation or even a thought of being taken advantage by someone else or mistreated by someone else or judged by someone else. And, and if we just leave it there, if, the, if that was the end of the story, if Genesis ended at that point we would have a problem, right? Because we would go, well, that's not the way it is now, right? That's not, that's not the reality that we know now. Actually, the reality we know now is very, very, very different than that. 
In fact, I used the illustration. I said, probably the quickest way to embarrass any one of us would be to traipse us up here naked, right? We would instantly be ashamed. We don't live in that world. So what happened? Instead, we live in this world of Ecclesiastes, right? Which is where, where we, we expect to see justice, we see injustice. Where we expect to see someone doing the right thing, we see people doing the wrong thing. Where, um, where we see oppression at every turn. War, famine, starvation. This is the world we live in. What, that, we don't live in that world. What went wrong? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get into that. Lord, thank you for uh, this community. Thank you for this group of believers that, are, that come together in fellowship every week and have the opportunity just to worship you and, and honor you. And we also have the chance to, to, to dig into your word, to understand your truth, to understand the reality in which you've, you've brought us to in this time and this place, to understand ourselves better. Lord, I just pray as we get into this passage this morning that you would um, remind us of truths that we've known for years, that you would help us uh, go deeper into these truths, that, that the application of these truths would, would, um, would reach out into every area of our life, and that we would, we would get an honest picture of, of our state, of our reality, of, our, um, of really our brokenness, which is really what this morning's about. Help us to understand this brokenness. Help us understand how we can be prone to the same kind of choices that created this brokenness. And may you just do your work in us. May your spirit teach us this morning. Help me to get out of the way of, you, of the text and just make it clear. Pray this all in your name. Amen. So this is how Genesis 3 starts. Hello, this call is officially... Oh, 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 oh. oh. I forgot an illustration this morning that, that was right there. Exploitation. Um, we are uh, oppressed. We, are, um, we live in the world of Ecclesiastes. I've got to set this whole thing back up again, right? Um, we, live, uh, we, we live in a world that, that manipulates and uses us. And here's a couple of examples of that. Uh, Hello, this call is officially a final notice from IRS. Internal Revenue Service. The reason of this call is to inform you that IRS is filling a lawsuit on your name because you had tried to do a fraud with the IRS Internal Revenue Service and we are taking a legal action and we are issuing an arrest warrant on your name. Anybody else gotten this call? We're all in trouble. We're all going to jail apparently unless we give them our social security number, right? Uh, how about uh, this one? We've been trying to reach you concerning your car's extended warranty. <laughs> you know her voice, right? Uh, um, apparently, they've been trying to reach us. I uh, haven't gotten a hold of me yet. But, uh, uh, right, we live in a world that tries to manipulate, manipulate us, uh, a world that we can't trust, right? Um, and if you do trust those people, um, you're going to be in trouble, right? Um, that's the world we live in. All right, Genesis chapter 3 uh, starts here. Says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. So we had this serpent uh, coming in, uh, a crafty uh, serpent, a smart, clever serpent. Um, and uh, this, this word actually for, for crafty can either be a positive word or a negative word. It can be something that's like uh, you're really prudent or discerning or shrewd, which is really good, right? Uh, but it also can mean you're, uh, you're deceptive and, and, and tricky and treacherous, right? It's like the phone calls that we get. Um, and so we have this serpent who is, we'll see, very tricky and deceptive and treacherous. And says, you can't eat uh, from that tree. 
You can't eat from any tree? Trying to set her up. And she says, no. She says the right response. This is the good response. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Any of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, that tree we can't eat from. Is this true? Yes. Is it accurate? Yes. This is what God had said. This is what God had told them, right? In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it, you surely will die. She knows her stuff. The problem is not knowledge here, or a lack of knowledge, um, which destroys the idea um, that is out there sometimes that assumes that the more you know, the, the less evil there is. In fact, if we could educate everyone up to a, to a certain point, we could probably eradicate evil. People just need to be educated. She didn't need to be educated. She knew her stuff. The question was not knowledge. The problem was this. Look at verse 4. It says, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the serpent contradicts Yahweh. Yahweh says, you will die? What's the serpent say? You won't die. That's not true. Isn't this always how temptation works? Right? We get this temptation uh, to, to, to sin. God says the wages of sin is death. If you do that sin, you will die. And that temptation, we look at it and it actually, we think, ah, oh, maybe there's life there. Not death. I think there's life. That looks like that's going to bring me something good. And he says, your eyes will be opened to Eve. God knows good and evil. You don't know evil. You know good, but you don't know evil. So you're missing out on something. Now, is it true that Eve, Adam and Eve did not know evil? They did not. Were they missing out on something? No, they weren't missing out on anything. But he's playing on this going, you know what? You don't know something, so you need to gain that knowledge because there's something there for you. There's something good for you. Look, God even knows good and evil. You don't know good and evil. And he's holding out on you. Again, does this ring true for any of us? When we experience temptation in our lives, we see a sin that we know is not good for us because God said it's not good for us, but we go, ah, oh, maybe it is good for us. Maybe God is holding out on me. The illustration I thought of was, was this. Uh, imagine that uh, you're standing on the edge of this cliff, and you're looking down, and you're like, man, it's a beautiful valley down there, right? And someone comes along and says, hey, you know what? If you think this is cool, try jumping off. Have you ever jumped off before? Well, no, I haven't ever jumped off before. Well, you should try it because you're missing out on something. You're missing, you're missing what it feels like to fall for 500 feet into this valley. And you might go, well, but if I do that, I know what the end of the story is, right? It's splat. I know what's coming after the 500 feet. But imagine if that same person said, really? You really think death is going to be the end of your jump? Well, yeah, I do. Well, you're wrong. There's not going to be death at the end of that. In fact, you're going to gain all the benefits of jumping off the cliff and not die. Now, I don't know about you. I don't think I could be convinced of that, right? I'd be like, yeah, I know how that ends. But somehow we're convinced that that sin that's appealing to us that at the end of that sin, we're not going to go splat. When God, the creator of the universe, is like, you're going to go splat? We're buying it. We buy it regularly. 
And unfortunately, Eve bought it. Look at this. Verse 6. It says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. We're going to pause right there. She looks at the, at the fruit on the tree, and, she, and there's three responses she has. She says, it looks good for food, which is just another way of saying, that's going to be yummy in my tummy, right? That's, I, that's going to feel good to put that into my body. And then she says, it's a delight to the eyes. It looks really good. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of fruit, right? It could be a terrible, ugly-looking piece of fruit, but it was not a terrible, ugly-looking piece of fruit. It was a beautiful-looking piece of fruit. And third, she said, it's desirable to make one wise. She thinks this. It's desirable to make one wise. She actually, that word desire, desire means you can lust after. She lusted after being smarter than she was, knowing more than what she currently did. And we call this whole situation temptation. That's the way we define it today. I think John actually... Uh, re- reflects on this reality in, um, in 1 John chapter 2. And I don't know whether he's doing this intentionally um, because of what he knows or if it just happens to line up with the way temptation works. But this is what he says. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the bo- boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Did you catch the three categories of things that the world draws us into or draws us by? He says, the lust of the flesh, she looked at it, and she wanted it for her body, right? She desired it. It looked, or she desired it for her body. The lust of the eyes, it looked good to her, right? And the boastful pride of life, she wanted to puff herself up. She wanted to be more than what she was, have more than what she had. That knowledge that would make her like God. This is the way temptation has worked from the very beginning. It's the way temptation works now. Can you think of any sin in your life, any temptation in your life, that you aren't tempted either by a desire of the flesh to make your, your body feel good or a, a lust of the eyes because something looks really appealing to you or the desire to make yourself more, to puff yourself up. This is the way sin works. This is the draw it has for us. And so for Eve... She, she was drawn by those three things, and she took from its fruit, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. They both ate the fruit. Now they're taking this good gift that God had given them, putting the tree in the garden and, and saying, here's this gift of choosing me. Here, here's this, this free opportunity to, to, that you could choose wrongly, but I'm giving it to you, for, to you to choose me, to love me. I'm giving this to you for rela- relationship with me, that you now have the opportunity for obedience and, and to choose to obey and love me. And they instead use that gift that God, God gave to them for themselves to satisfy their own desires to glorify themselves, to love themselves over loving God. Does this ring true at all for us? Anybody ever been in this situation? I know it's probably rare for you, right? Nothing's really changed. This is not just a history lesson. This, this is a, a right now lesson. This is an explanation for why your life is the way it is, why this world is the way it is, why people make the choices that they make. It's because 
this is humanity. This is a picture of, of the choice that we made and the choices that we make. And we could try to distance ourselves from the past. In fact, I used to, I remember thinking, man, <clears throat> I just don't like that those Adam and Eve people. Like, they just messed it all up. I would have done better as I walk into my next sin, right? Now, this is us. And this is written for us to see that, that this first man and this first woman, this is the way that they were. And this is the way that each man and each woman now is. Romans 1 speaks to this. For they, the they here is humanity, us, we exchanged truth, the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We exchange the creator's ways for our own ways. We change worship of God, honor of God, love for God to worship ourselves for our own purposes. James 1 says it this way. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to death, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth, sorry, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is how it works. Every one of us has bought the lie. Every one of us has put our own desires over obedience and worship of the Creator. Every one of us has been carried away and enticed to satisfy our own desires because disobedience looks so good to us, to inflate ourselves, to make us the center of the universe, at least of our own universe, because God's best just doesn't seem like it's enough, or didn't seem like it's enough in that moment. Some of us even now are, are probably stuck in a pattern of, of just being comfortable with not worshiping our Creator, but worshiping ourselves. We're choosing a sin in our life that we go, yeah, I just like the sin better than I like God. Now, we'll never say that. Those words will never come out of our mouth because we'll go, I'll show up on Sunday and pretend like I love God more than I love this sin in my life. But we're lying to ourselves. It's not the reality. It's not the truth. We're, we're Adam and Eve in the garden. We're making the choice to, to take this beautiful gift of, of free will that God has given us and twist it for our own purposes. This is not who we were meant to be. This is not what we were created for. Point on your handout if you want to fill it in. Oh, shoot. That's going to happen the whole time because I, I forgot to put that back in the middle of my presentation. So I'm just going to read it for you. Um, humans took God's good gift of choice and used it to serve themselves instead of their creator. Humans took God's good gift of choice and used it to serve themselves instead of their creator. So the three blanks are choice, themselves, and creator. One more time. Humans took God's good gift of choice and used it to serve themselves instead of their creator. Why are humans broken? Why is there selfishness, greed, pride at every turn? Because we chose, as a human race, satisfaction of the moment over being truly fulfilled in God. We chose what looked good and beautiful in the moment over what is truly good and beautiful. We chose the knowledge of evil over the knowledge of God. We're broken. I think we can all agree. I, I don't even have to prove that point. This world's broken, right? There's something really wrong here. There was something really wrong here, right? We're broken because we broke ourselves. And if we get this wrong about ourselves, we'll quickly get many other things wrong about ourselves. All right, he goes on in verse 7. He says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They instantly recognize their nakedness. And this is not like they didn't realize that they did not have fabric over their skin. Obviously, they realized the whole time they didn't have fabric over their skin. That wasn't the issue. The issue is suddenly we have this contrast, direct contrast, to what we just had at the end of of chapter 2 in verse 25. This perfect picture, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the beautiful thing, the beautiful moment, the beautiful picture of, of, of security No shame, no expectation of hurt, no even hint of the possibility of exploitation is in in this verse. No, No even possible pain, emotional pain, physical pain. There's no sense at all that they could ever be taken advantage of. They, they just are so oblivious to it because it's just, it just wasn't a part of their reality. And now suddenly, we, they had this immediate sense of shame. They knew that they were naked and they made themselves coverings. I'm suddenly ashamed. They had immediate sense of, of a need to be protected because they were vulnerable. Where evil wasn't even a thought before, it's now lurking around every corner, in every shadow. And they need to do something about it. Did they gain the knowledge of evil? Sure they did. And it broke them and it has broken us. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Not only did they have this shame amongst themselves, but now they have this shame before God. I got to go hide myself. I got to go protect myself. Verse 9, then Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Notice, he wasn't afraid of the punishment of sin. He doesn't even have a a realization of that yet. But he was afraid of this nakedness, this vulnerability that he had before God. Because now evil is really possible. He knows that. He understands that. And I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine being in his blissful state of not knowing evil. Can you even imagine that, what that would be like? Because every moment of my life, evil has been a possibility. Every moment of your life, evil has been a possibility. And so we're constantly aware of the ways that other people can hurt us. Constantly aware of the, way, the ways that other people will take advantage of us if we're not careful. Because it's at every turn. And now they live in this world, right? They live in this world where this, there's a real reality of evil. Verse 11, God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice, nakedness again is not the issue. In a world where, where evil it does not exist, the there's not a possibility of this vulnerability, right? Vulnerability is not a concern, but evil entered the world and it's now an issue and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the source of that. And so God immediately goes to that. He's like, this has got to be the source of it because now evil is real for you. And look at how they respond. Verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, from the tree and I ate it. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do we see this? Do we recognize this? Do we know this from our own life? This is the blame game, right? This is the pass the buck. This is what 
if you've ever had kids, right, this is a reality in your household, right? Uh, we had this all the time with Ellie and Clark. It's like, Clark, we told you you couldn't have a cookie. Well, Ellie got the cookie jar down. Like, somehow that makes it okay, right? Somehow that makes it better. Oh, okay. You go away. I'll deal with Ellie, right? You're both now culpable, right? There's evil to be had in both of your hearts, right? Um, I was, this is kind of a side note, but I, I always think it's interesting. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time reading things, and I, you know, watch debates and things, and I, um, I, I uh, it's interesting to me that, that some of the prominent atheists that are out in the world today, um, kind of, who are proponents of atheism, right? They're trying to get others into their point of view on this thing. They will usually bring up, probably the most prominent, like, problem they'll bring up, which they say is a problem, is, what, um, is what's called the, the theodicy. It's like the, the problem of, of evil. Why is there evil in the world? How could a good God allow evil into the world? And then they'll trot out like a list of major terrible evils that are done in the world daily or have been done in the world in history. And they'll go, look, look at all this evil. So because evil exists, God can't exist. Right? Because a good God would not allow earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and slavery and rape and abuse and war and famine and pandemics, right? Because a good God would not allow that to go on. And, and what I think every time, like this is an issue that has to be discussed through and there's a lot of nuance to it and stuff, but every time I hear that, my first thought is, okay, so what you're doing is you're taking all of the brokenness in our world and whose feet are you laying it laying it at. God's. This is all your fault, God. I blame you. And like my mom taught me many, many years ago, if you're pointing at someone else, you got some fingers pointing back at you, right? That needs to be turned on us. No way we can, we can lay any single evil in this world at the feet of God ever. God only wanted beauty. God only wanted security for us. God only wanted good for us. And what did we do with that? We selfishly took it for ourselves and broke the world. And now we live in this broken world and go, God, you did it. What in the world is that? Well, I know what it is. It's passing the buck, right? I don't want to take responsibility for the fact that there's brokenness in our world. So I'm going to blame it on someone who's not responsible. It's unfair. It's not right of us to do that. And in fact, I would say this. We don't have to raise hands because we know that this would probably be unanimous. How many of us have sinned, right? Then, then, then the next time there's a tsunami and we want to blame someone, we need to walk into the bathroom and look in the mirror, right? Because we at least contributed to that moment. The next war, as you watch news coverage of the war this week, Take a moment to walk into the bathroom and go, what did I do? I'm a part of this. I contributed to this. My sin did this. Our sin did this. The point on your handout, which is not going to show up up here, but I'm going to read it for you, is um, the choice quickly created shame, fear, and a desire to shift the blame. The choice quickly created shame, fear, and a desire to shift the blame. Shame, fear, shift. Those are the three words. Sound familiar? When when we persist in a sin for quite a while, we can um, deaden our senses to our own sin. But think back to the first time you crossed the line in a particular area of your life. What was the result? 
Shame. Check. Fear that someone might find out or that maybe I sinned against this person and I might lose this relationship. Or people might really know who I really am and I'm really that dark and disgusting. And then, usually the next step is, okay, who can I blame? Oh, it was the person I sinned against. They, they made me sin against them, right, because of what they did. Or if this other person would have provided what I need in my life, then I wouldn't have had to go find it elsewhere. If God would have given me enough financial resources, then I wouldn't need to cheat. And the whole time, what we really need to do is go into the bathroom, look in the mirror, and go, what have I done? What God is trying to communicate to us in these passages is that we are broken, which we already know. But why we are broken? Why do we experience shame? Why do we live in fear? Why do we have a hard time taking responsibility for our own actions? And it's because we're broken. And he didn't break us, we broke ourselves. And again, if we get this wrong, we're going to get a lot of other things wrong. Finishes here, starting in verse 14. All actions have consequences and, and no one's getting off the hook here. So God starts with the serpent. It says, Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So because of the serpent's involvement here, there are consequences for the serpent. Snakes slither. That's just what they do. And so, in fact, if you see a snake, which I try to avoid those things, but if you see a snake and it's slithering, it should be a little bit like a rainbow, right? When we see a rainbow, what are we supposed to reflect on? God's promises, right? God's promise not to flood the earth again, right? When we see a snake slithering on the road, we should be reminded of our brokenness and the fact that we made big mistakes, right? And humanity is, has problems, right? And that is a result of the fall. And it goes on, verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel, and you shall bruise him on the heel. No, I'm sorry. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Basically, this is saying every snake past this time is going to be at odds with every human being past this time, right? And I think we can probably agree that that is a real reality in our world, right? Um, snakes and people do not mix. There are some really crazy people who love snakes and keep them in their homes. I think those people need some psychological help, okay? <laughs> um, snakes are nasty. In fact, um, uh, I wrote this down because it's a weird word. Oph ophidiophobia is a fear of snakes, and it is the most prominent fear among humans. In fact, 51% of humans record having a fear of snakes. Um, snakes are everywhere in our world, except for Antarctica and Iceland and Ireland and Greenland and New Zealand, but they're everywhere else. Um, there are more than 3,000 species of snake. 600 of them are venomous, and 200 of those 600 have venom that can kill you. There are 4.5 million snake bites every year. I don't know about you, but I just look at these pictures and there's something sinking in me that goes, oh, I, I need to look away, right? Of those 5.4 million snake bites every year, about 110,000 deaths by snake happen every year. 110,000 people die of snake bites every year. And that is serious. And you got another 400,000 who um, get a, a limb amputated. They live, but they live without a limb because of a snake bite. A snake, a serpent, was the enemy of the first humans, and they are still our enemies today. This is a product of the fall. 
I'm just glad they're in pictures on a screen. That's all I got to say. Even the pictures kind of wig me out, though. All right, 16 says this. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Because of Eve's choice, childbirth is extremely painful. Ladies who have ever had kids, extremely painful. Can we agree? Um, and actually, there's this phenomena that I think is a real thing um, that is, uh, I think they call it like birthing amnesia or something like that, right? Where, where women actually don't remember how painful it was because it was so painful you have to put it out of your mind. And this is why I think guys have it harder than the girls have it, than women have it, because I remember how painful it was for my wife to go through her two births. Um, literally, there's nothing like it, right? There's nothing even close to that level of pain. It is so excruciating. Taking one of the best moments in life, right? Bringing a new child into the world, bringing a new child into your family, right? We look back at that and we're like, yay, right? It's because you're forgetting how, much ter how terrible it was. I mean, it was just really, really bad. <laughs> Once you see the baby, it's all okay, right? It's a product of, of the fall. It could have been beautiful and pain-free, right? Now it's beautiful and excruciating. Is that God's fault? It's our fault. Now you also have this... this this uh, contrast to the picture in chapter 2 of oneness between husband and wife, right? This perfect, beautiful oneness of relationship. And now you have this phrase, or, or this two phrases, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, we can't perfectly define what's being talked about here, but I think a pretty good understanding of this is, is the desire for your husband is like this, this um, desire to control, desire to manipulate. We see this phrase used in other places in the Old Testament, and it has that sense of wanting to manipulate, to control, to dominate. And on the, on the husband's side, he will have this desire to dominate you, this desire to rule over the woman. You take this beautiful oneness that existed, and now you have these really tough tendencies within marriage that start to, to, to tear at the seams of this oneness to push this oneness apart, to create separateness when, when complete intimacy of relationship was intended. This is a product of the fall. Man does not get off. Adam does not get off. It says, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have not eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall, not, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Because of Adam's choice, where they had full enjoyment of life in the garden, now they have difficulty in life where they had abundance in the garden and joyful labor in the garden, now it's toilsome labor, difficult labor, hard work exists in our world. Where there was only pleasure, now there's pain and suffering in our world. And it's not only the addition of pain and suffering, but it's also the addition of of, of weeds and thorns and things that make life even more difficult, even more struggle, even more painful. 
And this is not for an hour. This is not for a day. This is not for a week. This is not for a year. This is for ever. This is, this is, this is until this, this tainted life exists from the moment now we're born till the moment we return to the ground. Until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is also, I mean, it's, it's a small part of this, but this is no small thing that he's describing here. We've got to understand, death was not a reality. Life was, was the only reality, right? And now we have death. It's described in a couple of other places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 says, In Adam all die. That applies to us. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is a virus that started with Adam that has been passed along every generation after every generation after every generation to, to which now we have, we've become so accustomed to this, we don't even think about the fact that we all are suffering from death. In fact, one of the things I think is really, really cool when I learned it years ago is that really you started dying the moment you were born. You started losing cells. Your, your cells started to die. In fact, right now, if you brushed your arm, a bunch of dead cells would go off of your arm. You're constantly dying. We live in a world in which you are dying, I am dying, and eventually those cells will, will, will be so dead that actually your whole body won't be able to function anymore and you'll be fully dead. And sin did this. Sin broke this. And now loss of life is possible. Permanent separation from someone you love is possible. And no matter how much we try to avoid this reality, it's going to never go away. In fact, I, I um, had heard about this about a year ago, and there was another article recently about this. Um, you guys heard about this aging reversal technology? They think they're finding ways or they're getting closer to way, of ways uh, to find ways to actually reverse aging. So that what? We don't die. You got billionaires who are, who are pouring just tons of money into technology that will allow you to upload your consciousness to a computer somewhere and live on. not possible. A lot of technologies, I'm like, hey, that might actually work out one day. This is not going to work out one day. Why? Because we all sin. Death is the consequence of sin. We will all die. There's no way around it. And before we die, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be pain. And that struggle and that pain is is perpetrated by other sinners who are sinning against you, who are sinning in this world constantly. And we just live in a broken, fallen state. That is until Christ defeats the last enemy, right? Which is death. Yes. Point on your handout, which again, you're not going to be able to see. It says, this choice has done irreparable damage to the world and condemned humanity to a life full of pain, suffering, and ultimately death. Pain, suffering, and ultimately death. I'm actually convinced this is one of the reasons why we're not always crazy about Ecclesiastes. It's because it reminds us of brokenness. And we would prefer not to think of brokenness. We'd prefer not to avoid actually staring our brokenness in the face and actually realizing how vulnerable and, and painful we are in this life. But this is all to, to, to make sure that we're clear on understanding why we experience pain and loss, why life is so hard, why life is so fragile, 
why oneness in marriage can be extremely difficult to attain. Or even sometimes it is destroyed. It's because we're broken. It's because we live in a broken world. But we have to get this one thing right if we get nothing else right. We're the cause. We're responsible. Nobody else. And if we don't get that right, we're going to get a lot of other things wrong. Uh, there's just a quote at the bottom of your uh, handout that I like from Randy Alcorn. It says, in reality, sin robs us of fulfillment. Sin doesn't make life interesting. It makes life empty. Sin doesn't create adventure. It blunts it. Sin doesn't expand life. It shrinks it. And that's so, so true. I know a lot of us can read that and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've experienced that in my own life. Problem is, then the new temptation comes and it promises life, and it looks really good, and we fall for the same old tricks. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are um, just thankful for making things clear to us. These are, this is a, a tough day in history to look at, a tough reality to live with, that if it wasn't for our sin, we could have beauty and wholeness and, and we could have an existence that is far more than what we have now. But we live in this world that is less. We live in this world that is twisted. We live in this world that is, uh, is broken and tarnished by sin. We experience every day this broken, fallen world. Lord, help us to recognize the source of that, where that came from. And may that push us to the one who can do something about it. May that push us to you who, who uh, can address those realities in our life. Help us more uh, closely reflect your image, even in this fallen, broken world. Pray this all in your name. Amen.